hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, Congress returned to Washington after its long summer recess, and since Congress is back, well, so are we. It seems every September, Congress comes back with an overflowing inbox of items calling for urgent attention. And this September is no exception to that. There's lots to do, and there never seems to be enough time to do it. And that's our topic for today, the congressional agenda this fall. To help us explore the what, the when, the how, and maybe the how likely of these items, we are joined by our friends, Jennifer Gray and Tom Stout. So, Tom, let me start with you. First question is, are there urgent to-dos for Congress to return to, and what exactly are they? Well, there are a lot of them, and as you say, these are things they've got to do sometime this year, and none of them involve tax, unless you're talking about maybe they get to the IRS funding levels. So you want the laundry list? Give it to me. At the top of the list, they've got 12 appropriations bills they have to pass to fund the government beyond the end of the fiscal year, which ends September 30th. And there are significant both House-Senate differences and partisan differences, what to do. Generally speaking, the Senate has been sticking to, in its consideration of this, spending levels that were set in that debt ceiling agreement that was reached back in July. And they've been doing that on a bipartisan basis, which is the encouraging part. The House has been proceeding on a partisan basis, and the Republicans are attempting to cut the spending levels considerably by about $100 billion for the next fiscal year. And that's, remember, all coming out of just 16% of the budget for non-defense discretionary spending. So it's focused exclusively on those non-defense discretionary programs. And the House Republicans are also seeking to add some rather controversial policy writers to it. And then on top of that, the administration has proposed a $44 billion supplemental spending item that they want to add to all of that. This is over and above the regular spending. About $24 billion for Ukraine, $18 billion for disaster relief now. That keeps going up because of the disasters and a couple of minor items. Some of that's controversial as well. There are differences on how to spend the money and whether to spend the money and whether to offset the spending with other spending cuts. So a lot to do just on the 12 appropriations bills. Beyond that, they've got programs that are expiring that have to be reauthorized. The big ones are defense. Now that's a December 31st expiration, but that's an annual bill that has to pass to authorize defense department programs. Farm programs, the farm bill, which includes supplemental nutrition, that's the food stamps, and FAA reauthorization. Those are the big ones. And then they've got a handful of little ones, pandemic relief, blood insurance, temporary assistance for needy families, AIDS relief, all those programs are expiring. They all have to be reauthorized too sometime this fall, theoretically by September 30th, but probably later. That's what I say. You think that's enough, John? That's all? Tom, I thought you said we we're going to be busy this fall. No, it's, I mean, you said that the Senate is moving on a bipartisan basis. The House is moving on a more partisan basis. And there are some controversial items between the two that have to be dealt with. So in other words, everything is perfectly normal because that's kind of the way it always works, doesn't it? At least when you have divided control. Is that fair to say? Is it really that different than we would expect given divided control between the House and the Senate? No, you know, I think on the plus side is say that there is bipartisan agreement in the Senate and it's around the agreement that was reached back in July. So, you know, they had a deal at one point or thought they did. So the problem is really on the House side and how the speaker 
manages his Republican majority there to, to manage to get this through. They'll do it at the end of the day. I think the only question is, you know, whether we see a shutdown or two along the way. That is the question. And Speaker McCarthy was tested, of course, in the debt limit deal. And I think people um, felt that he navigated that fairly well. But this is the next test. It may be even a harder test considering the way that original deal was structured. So if you love politics, this is going to be really interesting to watch how not only this goes here at the end of the federal fiscal year, September 30, but plays out into the rest of the year. Okay, very good. Well, thanks for that. That's a good background on this. So now, Jennifer, let's talk a little bit about timing some more. So Tom laid out all these things that we have to do. We know, of course, that the federal fiscal year is a 930 year end. Of the big things that we talked about, how is the timing going to play and how does timing work into the agenda and how quickly Congress must act here? Well, I suspect the majority of items, Congress will do what it does best, which is kick the can down the road and try to buy themselves some more time. As you pointed out, 930 really is critical. That's the date that so many of these items become due that have to be dealt with. And so the question is how much or whether they're able to accomplish things by then. Lots of discussions about how they will manage to pass a short-term spending bill if they can to keep the government open, whether that might include some of the items that Tom talked about or not. I think even if they can get a deal to pass a continuing resolution, a CR, to keep the government temporarily open to get themselves more time to negotiate on some of these thornier issues, I think there's a question of how long that CR would last, so how far they would kick the can. There's some discussion about November and then discussion about December. I suspect that no matter what they decide, whether they decide on November or something shorter term, I think if that's the case, we could see perhaps a couple or a series of back-to-back CRs until we get to that mid-December deadline, whether that be December 15th, December 22nd, thereabouts. So that's my guess on timing, is I think they're going to use all the time they can up until the holidays. I fear that you may be right, Jennifer. For those of you that are hoping for an early break from congressional agenda, that's probably true. Of the things that Tom mentioned, obviously there's so much focus on government funding and whether or not we're going to have a government shutdown, rightfully so, that's a big one. But one of the ones that I think needs more attention is the FAA reauthorization. It's an issue that always sort of flies under the radar. See what I did there? But this is one of those things where... On September 30th, the authorization expires. Tell me if I've got this right, right? And that means a lot of things, including tax, because the airline ticket taxes, the authorization to impose those, I think also expires. And so if Congress fails there, it gets really messy, doesn't it? Because then the ticket taxes aren't imposed, but then if Congress later approves it and did so retroactively or not, things get really messy. So that's one of the ones we've seen happen in the past, haven't we, on this FAA reauthorization? It has. And as you said, it does get complicated. We certainly have folks wondering what they are supposed to do with regard to imposing these taxes, which are not technically still on the books when it comes to ticket taxes and that sort of thing. However, if you look at history, they've always been, at least to my knowledge, they've always been extended retroactively. So what happens with those folks who say buy a ticket and or fly in those two or three days or week or whatever it might be that those taxes are are technically expired? It's certainly on the table. It sounds like at least the latest in the press we're hearing from some of the approach type folks is that they think that if they do short-term CRs, that 
FAA may travel with that in that same short-term capacity. There are a number of issues, not necessarily on the tax side so much as I know in the Senate, the big issue is some questions about pilot training that's part of FAA. So there are still some actual issues that need to be worked out. Sometimes the FAA, at least from a tax perspective, sometimes seems like a relatively less complicated issue, but there are some other non-tax items that also come into play there. Yeah, and if you've been following the news outside of tax, but just generally, you know, we've had some interesting issues around air travel over the last year. And I, well, I can't imagine any member of Congress wants to be responsible for failing to get funding for the FAA and, you know, God forbid something bad happens. So it seems like that that's one that they're going to have to deal with. And you're right, maybe they just punt that until late November, December, and then they try and work that into a bigger deal. Okay. All right, Tom, let me come back to you. Let's talk some more about tax then. All this stuff going on tax hasn't been that active in 2023. So where does tax fit into the agenda for the fall? Obviously, we've been talking about extenders and other things. So where does all that fit into the discussion this fall? Well, so far, it hasn't fit in at all. You know, obviously, it's a secondary or tertiary priority for Congress, and they're not likely to get around a serious negotiation on it until they're getting toward the end of the year, whenever it's going to be. As Jennifer says, maybe November, December, who knows? This is the kind of thing they put off till the end of the year. And there's some significant things in there, things that our clients are really interested in, like 174 expensing and 163J, the interest limitation and bonus depreciation, regular extenders, there are a handful of those as well. We're probably looking at the end of the year. And again, as in last year, with all this going on, the question is going to be, are they going to have time to work that out when you know, you've know you got the Democrats demanding as the price for the TCJA changes, doing something on the child credit and the EITC? They're pushing for something along the lines of ARPA, which was a great expansion and created refundability and advanceability of the child credit. Trying to get together on that, get the Republicans and, and Democrats together on all this at the end of the year with all this going on. That's the question is, how does this fit in? But if it fits in, it's probably going to fit in at the end of the year if they've got time along with, you know, whatever they're doing. As one lobbyist around town used to say, it was a 72-hour rule for tax extenders. That meant Congress was going to adjourn within 72 hours when they did it. So I think we're probably in that situation again. So let me emphasize that point for everybody listening to make sure you got that. There was some hope earlier in the year that we were going to see Congress would resolve some of these budgetary matters. They would be prepared to do sort of a larger budget deal in September to fund the government, all sort of the sort of things attached to that. And that would be the opportunity for these tax items to move, right? They would get attached to that, which not ideal. None of these are ideal. If you've been waiting for, for example, 174 to get resolved all these months, years, having it done in December after financial filings, tax returns filed, all this stuff. And if it's done retroactively, as it may be, as Republicans have talked about, boy, it's messy for sure. But that probably is looking like the most likely scenario at this point, if, if they do it at all. Yeah. Congress doesn't care about that schedule. It's true. <laughs> It's true. I get the question. I'm sure you do too. Somebody from clients, like, don't they understand how complicated this is going to be for us? And it doesn't make any sense. Like, they, I think they know. I just don't think it moves them that much. So, right. So, okay, Jennifer, where taxes stand, let's just ask ourselves the question how do we feel about things? Because I think we're on record for saying last December, December of 2022, we had optimism 
that Congress would find a way to get a deal on some of the extenders. We were certainly told by those on the Hill that they had hoped that they were going to work out a deal and they were prepared to negotiate, and it just didn't happen. And again, we can relitigate why it didn't happen, but that's in the past. The question I think for today is, is there reason for more optimism on getting an extenders deal this year than there was last December? Or we basically just in the exact same position that we were last December and nothing's really changed since then. I may have used my optimism up last <laughs> year because I'm not sure I, I see where the positions of the two negotiating sides have really changed a lot. Now we're hearing that folks are thinking about just particularly on the CTC and trying to be creative and trying to come up with different ways to address that issue and, and try to put more options on the table. So I think there's some desire there. You know, the question is at the end of the day, just is there going to be a deal? Is there going to be an opportunity to have a deal that satisfies both sides or both sides feel like they're getting enough to let some tax move forward? And I just don't think we know at this point. I hear you. I agonize over this, actually, because, you know, maybe I'm a little scarred by last December. But let me make the case for maybe a sliver of optimism. What we do have this year that we did not have last year is a bill. Republicans in the Ways and Means Committee have introduced a bill on extenders outlining the specifics of how it would go. Obviously, they spent a lot of time thinking about it. It's done retroactively. We didn't have that last December, right? We've got an actual piece of legislative text out there to at least start from in the negotiation. I would feel a lot better, though, about that as a, a sign of hope if it included some version of the child tax credit. The Republicans were prepared to put the child tax credit on the table, knowing that it was an opening bid in a negotiation. They left the child tax credit out, even though we'd gotten some rumblings that they were thinking about putting it in. Instead, what we got was mostly 174, 163J and bonus depreciation. But we continue to hear from both sides that they're willing to talk about the child tax credit. At this point here in early September, talk is cheap. And if this really isn't going to materialize these negotiations, as Tom said, until the 72-hour rule, which would put us somewhere into December, it's hard to be super optimistic now until we know what those negotiations actually sound like. Let me ask you that question, Tom. Are you any more or less optimistic than you were last December? What happened when they didn't do it last year? The world didn't come to an end. And that's not going to push Congress to do it this year any more than last year and anything less if things didn't go really horribly wrong after they failed to act, that's the kind of thing that they notice when they're not deeply into the policy. I'm at least as worried as I was last year and maybe a little more so because of that. Yeah, fair point. Let me ask you both a question. If they do these items, <laughs> will they be paid for in any way? Will there be any oh. tax revenue raisers attached to these to help offset the cost? That's the easy one. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that's right. Jennifer, do you concur? I think so. Back in the day, I think we might have seen a situation if they had a few relatively quote unquote easy razors that you, know, you pay for half the bill and then one party is able to say that the, those razors offset the child tax credit and the other half able to say those razors offset the business provisions. But I'm not sure how many easy, if any, easy razors are left around anymore. They've yeah. uh, used quite, quite, uh, quite a few of them up over the years. I was going to say, do you have a razor in mind, Jennifer? Because they're never easy. There might be a couple that have been talked about, but I don't know. Tom, do you have any thoughts on ones that they would throw in? The easy one that's floating around out there, maybe, I mean, relatively easy, is applying the wash sale rules to, to cryptocurrency Crypto. trends. But, yeah. you know, it doesn't raise much money. So why bother? You know, it's, why bother? It, save it for something else. Yeah, fair point. 
I worked for a member of Congress who was fond of saying about whether when, you know, when the debate would inevitably come up, should we pay for extenders? And what he would say was, why should we raise taxes to prevent a tax increase? And his logic has proven to be pretty watertight over the years. That, that's the case. So I'm with you. If they do these, I just don't think they're going to even attempt to pay for them. It'll be in a massive bill with all sorts of government funding. It'll be kind of just a modest piece of this major, major year-end bill. Okay, let me ask you both one last question then. We've talked about these same extenders over and over and over for two years, 174, 163J, the interest limitation, and of course, bonus depreciation. Any bold predictions on some tax item that we're not thinking of yet? If there is a tax title to this bill that could find a way into the discussion and maybe into law before the year is over, anything that we're not thinking about that we should be? Well, one thing that is floating around out there, there's going to be a markup in the finance committee next week, is, is doing something about Taiwan and double taxation of cross-border transactions. There's a lot of interest in doing that. It's bipartisan. The only problem at the moment seems to be, you know, whether to take the approach that the finance committee wants to take, which is make some direct changes in the tax code or the way foreign relations wants to go, which is to authorize a negotiated tax agreement that's not a treaty that would have to be approved by Congress. And they have, don't seem to have worked out which approach you want to take. You've got a situation here. we got committee chairmen protecting their jurisdiction as much as anything. That's something I could definitely see happening this year. So just to, maybe it's obvious to everybody, but in case it's not, Tom, just remind people the, the way we normally deal with avoidance of double taxation is via treaty. Can't do that here because? Because Taiwan's not a country that we recognize. Yep. Right, right. All right. Well, Jennifer, what do you got? Same thing? Something else? I have the really exciting one of Secure 2.0 Technicals. There was a bipartisan <laughs> piece of legislation dropped a few months ago. So that's hanging out there. As you'll recall, Secure 2.0 did end up going on that end of year spending bill where they failed to get a larger agreement on extenders. So, you know, as we know, retirement savings seems to be one of those areas where they do seem to over and over be able to come to bipartisan bicameral agreement. So uh, for those of you who are just waiting with bated breath for those secure 2.0 technicals, that might be a possibility perhaps. When was the last time they did a technical corrections bill? But in mind, most of those technical corrections were related to partisan bills, the TCJA, the ACA, Etc. I it right. So as I said, this is a bipartisan technicals bill that was dropped. So it's, you know, always a possibility. No, I'm trying to be optimistic a, here. I didn't have much to give you on. <laughs> I, no, I, I like it. And it's a good one because, as you say, it's sort of a boring topic, technicals. You know, people start to nod off when you talk about them. But if it's one you really care about, they're an enormous deal. And as you suggest, Tom, we've been at this impasse on technicals since the TCJA, that Democrats would not agree to them. And you have to have bipartisan, bicameral agreement to do technicals. And, well, um, and you have and to then, go back. Remember, Republicans would not agree to ACA technicals either. Correct. And yeah. then you can go forward that they will not agree, apparently, to IRA technicals. So, you know, it's been a while, but it would be nice to clean up the tax code where we can. So that's a good one. All right. Thank you, Jennifer. Well, Jennifer, Tom, thank you very much for your thoughts today. But let's just leave it there for now. In closing, just one last thing. Talking about these extender items, you might be thinking, why would Congress enact these provisions retroactively? I mean, Section 174 is designed to encourage spending on R&D type activities. Bonus depreciation is designed to encourage investment in equipment. The EBITDA standard of 163J's interest limitation was designed to ease companies into a world of less leverage. 
So undoing those retroactively would just seem like rewarding folks for doing what they were going to do anyway. Here's the thing. While that conclusion is arguably right, it probably would not come as a revelation to anybody working on Capitol Hill. Even the most fresh-faced tax committee intern would probably say that retroactive tax changes violate many principles of tax policy. So why then does Congress repeatedly do it? I don't have a great answer for you other than that's just what they've always done. You know, once upon a time, Congress routinely extended expiring items before they, you know, expired. But maybe 15 or so years ago, the extension timeline started to slip. First, it slipped by a few months, then it slipped to a full year. And now we are looking at the possibility of a two-year retroactive extension. So why do it? Well, listen, I'm not here to defend that policy, but if I had to try and explain why, it would probably be something like this. Let me try and channel what Congress might say. Here it is. We as Congress have the obligation to address these items in a timely manner. And we try, we do, but sometimes we fail. But it's not your fault, taxpayer, it's ours. And because you probably trusted us to get the extensions done in a timely manner, you behaved with the assumption that we would, including your committing spending and so forth. And even when we failed to do the extensions timely, you've seen Congress extend them retroactively over and over. So it wasn't unreasonable for you to assume that we would do so again. Call it detrimental reliance, if you will. So because you've acted in good faith taxpayer, so will we. We won't let you down and we will extend these items retroactively. Okay, I'm done channeling Congress now. Now, having heard that, I'll leave it to you. Decide if that's a compelling justification for retroactive tax policy. But I've heard it said just like that. In fact, during my time on Capitol Hill, I probably said it myself. So now to be clear, I'm not saying Congress will enact these provisions retroactively. They clearly might not. In fact, they might not enact them at all, as we discussed today. But if you find yourself asking why Congress just sometimes acts in mysterious ways, well, remember, Congress is not a tax policy laboratory. Yes, policy matters. It's an input into legislation, but it's not the only input. It's really 435 members in the House, 100 members in the Senate, trying to get to yes by whatever means they can. And while sometimes that process, it's just mysterious. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and your suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.